morning is from Luke 5, 27 through 32. This is what Holy Scripture says. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name's Jason. I'm the other pastor here at King's Church. Welcome. We're glad you're with us on this, our first ever Vision Sunday. We're calling it a Vision Sunday. You may have noticed if you've been here for a while that the outline of the service is a little different today. If you have your bulletin, you can see in there uh, we've changed the offering uh, would usually come after the confession. We've put that towards the end of the service. Uh, so we're making some slight changes, this being what we consider the beginning of our ministry year from September of 2018 until next summer of 2019. This is um, a Sunday where we're going to talk about our focus for the coming year as a church. Now, if you were with us last fall, we shared our vision this way, that we want to be a growing family rooted in Jesus, sharing God's love with our neighbors and the world. And as we gathered, uh, our leadership gathered this past summer, our elders got together, our ministry leaders got together in July and August, and we talked about what do we want to focus on for this coming ministry year. And there was uh, a general consensus as we sought God's leading and really tried to determine what it was we were going to focus on as a church. Uh, This theme of family kept coming up. To be a growing and thriving family was what we felt God pressing on us. Now, there are huge barriers to a church being family. Uh, For example, geography makes a big difference in being able to have that sense of family with your church. Happiness researchers researchers at uh, Canada's McGill University and Vancouver School of Economics recently surveyed 400,000 Canadians, and they found that the average life satisfaction in rural areas they sampled were significantly higher than in urban areas. So in other words, if you want to be happy, live in the country, not in the city. That's what the data shows. Uh, Factors for greater happiness were shorter work commutes, which means you could spend more time with your family. And while people who live in cities tend to interact with more people, often those interactions are more shallow. City dwellers also tend to have less contact with family and friends. They also don't feel safe, which means city dwellers Uh, interact with their neighbors less often. By contrast, people in rural areas, they say they feel a stronger sense of connection with their neighbors. They also tend to be less transient. 
And so the uh, data from this study seems to support the journalist Christopher Ingraham's uh, comments from the Washington Post when he says that small towns and rural areas are more conducive than cities to forming strong social bonds. So in light of this conclusive data, I'm pleased to announce our new capital campaign to move King's Church to Cactus City, California. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, Cactus City is about two and a half hours east past Palm Desert. We're not doing that, but, but it's helpful for us to just say, hey, it's hard to have tight relationships when you live in a place like Long Beach or LA or Orange County. Uh, another barrier is the racial or ethnic diversity in our church. Uh, that, let's face it, that makes it harder to feel those tight bonds when you don't come from the same uh, ethnic background. Also, personalities make it hard. Uh, introverts don't like new people. Uh, extroverts don't like meaningful conversations. So, uh, <laughs> I'm taking all the shots this morning. <laughs> Technology makes it hard. Technology makes it hard. The number of teens who spend daily time with friends has dropped 40% over the past decade. And much of that's attributed to the uh, smartphones. Teens like to spend time in the room on their smartphones instead of face-to-face -face interactions. And of course, binging on Netflix, surfing the web, video games, all this takes away from that face-to-face -face time with real people. And finally, I, I would say a barrier to, to really having tight relationships is the spirit of our age. I'll call it the spirit of our age. And I, I quoted this uh, a while back uh, from Star Wars Episode Eight, but Benicio Del Toro's character, DJ, said it well, uh, live free, don't join. And I think that summarizes well what many people in our culture believe, and that's what we're fighting against as a church and cultivating a growing and thriving family. Uh, live free, don't join. So what can we do as a church? That's what we want to talk about this morning. That's, what's our vision to counter these barriers? And there's many more we could mention. Well, for starters, we want to do a better job as a church uh, welcoming visitors and bringing them to a place of connection into the church family and ultimately having them become members of King's Church. Now, we as a church, I think, have done well welcoming people. That initial welcome, people say all the time, we have a friendly church. But after that initial welcome, how are we bringing people into the family life of King's Church? I mean, we have a culture that's telling you, live free, don't join. But we're saying, no, true freedom is found when you do join. We are presenting a countercultural message and saying, no, it's important for you to commit to this church family. We think it's important for you to become a member of King's Church, not just float, but make that commitment. And you'll find that that will be a foundation for this family to thrive. So that's one thing we want to do is move people towards membership at King's Church. And another thing we want to do is really uh, hopefully cultivate a sense of ownership for you to have of the ministries of King's Church. 
uh, for you to be connected in community groups and in cluster groups, for you to be serving, giving uh, your gifts, your time, for you to be a part of the ministry of this church, for you to sense that this is your ministry, not just King's Church ministry. It's your part of it. It's your family, and you're taking ownership of it. And so we want to move people to membership. We want to have this sense of joint ownership of the ministries. And, and these are all things that we'll continue to talk about in years to come. But what I'd like to focus on with the rest of my time for a little more in depth is this very common, simple, everyday act that all of us already do that might just be the key to us developing a sense of connection and family here at King's Church. And that's what we find in our passage this morning. Uh, Tim Chester uh, wrote a book where he, he makes the point that the New Testament introduces this phrase, the Son of Man came. And of course, it's in relation to Jesus. The Son of Man came. And there's three ways that the New Testament finishes that sentence. Uh, the first way is this in Mark 10. It says, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second way uh, the New Testament completes the sentence is in Luke 19. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But the final way that the New Testament finishes his sentence is Luke 7, where it says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Now, Chester makes the point that the first two uh, statements are statements of purpose. That why did, you know, answering the question, why did Jesus come? Or he came to serve, he came to give his life as a ransom, he came to seek and save the lost. Amen, we all know that, we believe that, we celebrate that. The third statement is, is a statement of method. He makes the point, how did Jesus come? Jesus came eating and drinking. The Son of Man, in Luke 7, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, a glutton, of course, is someone who eats too much. A drunkard is someone who drinks too much. Jesus was seriously into eating and drinking. This was the, these were the accusations the Pharisees and other religious leaders were making of Jesus. His enemies were accusing him of eating and drinking to excess. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, you see it throughout the Gospel. For example, our passage this morning was the first one in Luke 5, where Levi, the tax collector, after Jesus comes along and calls him, we're told that Levi made a great feast in his house. It is a huge party. And you go to Luke 7, this is where Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. You go to Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Go to Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal and he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. 
And of course, in Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper, which would have been much more like a meal for them than than the ways that we celebrate it today. And then finally, even in his resurrected body in Luke 24, Jesus has a meal with the two disciples in Emmaus, and then later he eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. And Tim Chester in his book puts it this way, that Jesus' mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Jesus loved to eat and drink with his friends. Now, why was eating and drinking so important to Jesus' mission? Well, New Testament scholar Scott Barchetti, I I botched his last name there, but uh, he puts it this way, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Meals in Jesus' day was a statement where you were saying to the other person, I see you, I know you, I accept you. It was an act of friendship. It was an act of embrace. And for Jews, not only was it an intimate act to eat with others, it also symbolized theologically a very important Old Testament theme that every good Jew would have known in Jesus' day In a prophecy like Isaiah 25, which we referenced in the call to worship this morning. In Isaiah 25, listen to what is described here by the prophet. Talks about, on the mountain of the Lord of hosts, he will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. This is the picture of the family of God one day all feasting, together, eating and drinking. And so Jesus here is not merely talking theology. He's not only, you know, philosophically imagining the kingdom of God come as this feast. Jesus in his ministry is bringing this prophecy. He's giving a taste of what this will be like in his very actions, in the way that he lived, in the way that he ate and ultimately, who he ate with. And of course, that's why his very first miracle was so important at a wedding in Canaan where he turned water into wine. Jesus is making this statement, this feast that that the prophets speak of, I am bringing it to reality. I am giving you a taste of what's to come. And this, of course, is what 
uh, how the Bible ends in Revelation with the wedding feast in Revelation 19, where it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I hope you're beginning to see where I'm taking us this morning, that when we feast together, oh, the symbolism, the power of what it represents, it's pointing back to the very ministry of Jesus and how Jesus lived his mission And it also points to the future hope that we have and where we one day will be face to face with Christ, eating and feasting with him together as the family of God. All I'm saying this morning, friends, is why wait? Why wait when we can begin to do this today? Becoming a growing and thriving family can be realized in our intentional efforts to begin to eat and drink together. But eating together, it's become harder to do. And I mentioned earlier some of the barriers that we face in doing this. Four years ago, The Atlantic uh, published an article on the importance of families eating together. And they made the point that the average American eats one in every five meals in her car. One in four Americans eat at least one fast food meal every single day. And the majority of American families report eating a single meal together less than five days a week. Now, that was four years ago. It may be even worse today. And it's not getting better. It's becoming harder and harder to do. Chester uh, notes in his book that there's been a 45% decline in entertaining friends among people. Uh, He he talks about growing up how uh, each Sunday he would ask who's coming for dinner today. It's not whether somebody was coming over, but who. His parents always had people over to their house for a meal to eat together. And that's why I'm offering for us as as a church family in this coming ministry year uh, to make a concerted effort, what I'm going to call a meal a month, and what we're going to do during the announcements is hand out these sheets that I'm going to invite you and your families or you as an individual to put on your refrigerator or put it somewhere in your house And make an effort to have one meal a month with someone, with a family, with an individual. And for you to track that, write the names of either the family or the individual you have that meal with. With the hope that next anniversary in June, when we celebrate our 13-year anniversary, during our second hour, we will come together and tell stories. We'll tell stories about having these meals together, what it was like, what we learned, what God did. And so that, we'll we'll hand these out later during the announcements. Now, this isn't going to be easy. We've already said why it's hard, uh, why it's a challenge. 
But things like geography and, and technology and all these other things, th- those make it hard, but they may not be the hardest challenge. Uh, that may not be the biggest challenge to having meals together. I think, um, you know, the bigger challenge might be more of the internal challenge that we have in taking those steps of risking having meals with other people because it's not just that I want you to have meals with people that you know. I want, and I'm asking for you to consider having meals with people you've never had a meal with before. Now, the thing I love about this story in Luke 5 is the feast wasn't the issue. The Pharisees knew that God's kingdom was going to be a party. Their objection was with the guest list. Uh, Scholars believe that Jews very rarely ate with Gentiles in Jesus' day. And, And the way they interpreted Isaiah's promised banquet even though it talks about all peoples and all nations, in the years leading up to Jesus' day, unfortunately, the, the Gentiles had been dropped off the invite list, particularly with the Pharisees who understood that Israel was under occupation of the Romans. And here you had someone like Levi who was a tax collector for the Romans. Levi, who was a Jew, was considered a traitor. He was working for the enemy. And he was profiting off of it. He's making a lot of money. And and so the Pharisees believed in what I'll call salvation by segregation. The Pharisees really believed that holiness and being clean before God was of the utmost importance. And the Pharisees tried to do that, most importantly, in their meals and how they ate and how they conducted themselves because they believed if they were able to be kind of um, a model of what holiness looked like and if they could do that faithfully, that they could actually bring about the renewal of Israel and that God would bring the kingdom of God uh, to bear and make it a reality. And they believed this is what God wanted from them. And that eating with sinners, eating with people like tax collectors, was embracing and accepting their lifestyle. And that would defile a person. And so for the Pharisees, what Jesus was doing went against everything they had built their lives on, the very foundation of what they were trying to accomplish as Pharisees, they had a holiness code. They were diligent. They were committed to their performance in this code. And that's why in verse 30 of our story, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled to Jesus' disciples and said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, the issue wasn't so much they were having this feast. It was who was invited And Jesus responds, which what I believe may be the best summation of the gospel in a nutshell here, where Jesus answers them and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I will say this. I believe this verse goes a long way in explaining 
the differences Christians have in how they understand sin and repentance and what it means to be a sinner and what it means to be a saint. You see, some Christians, I believe, view the Christian life this way, that when you come to faith, Jesus calls you a sinner to repentance. You repent, you come to faith in Jesus, and now you're a saint. You're no longer a sinner. Now, that is a very pervasive way of viewing the Christian life. And many churches promote that way of the, viewing the Christian life. And that is not the view I'm promoting this morning. And that is not the culture that we're trying to create here at King's Church. What I hope you see is that Jesus is making the point here that yes, you come to faith in Jesus as a sinner and you repent and put your faith in him. And yes, he changes you. You're clothed with his righteousness. Jesus makes you righteous before God, but it is Jesus' righteousness that makes you righteous before God, not your own. And so that at that point in time, you're now a sinner and saint. Sinner and saint. And if you're a sinner and saint, that means repentance is a daily act that will follow you your entire Christian life. And I think what Jesus is confronting here is, are you a Christian who, like the Pharisees, you don't see yourself as sick because Jesus is, I, I love the way he answers the Pharisees. He doesn't say to them, you're sick just like these guys are sick. Jesus allows the Pharisees to stay blind to their own sickness, doesn't he? He says, I haven't come for the righteous. You're, you're the righteous. I haven't come for you. So you just go along and live your, the way you're living. Have that uh, attitude. Have that mentality. You don't need me, the doctor. I've come for those who see it, who see their need. And my friends, we want to be a church where each and every one of us see our need. And we never outgrow that. We all need Jesus to eat with us. Because unlike the Pharisees who believed their actions could make them well, their purity code could make them well, the point of the whole story is that Jesus is the one who makes us well. And that we are healthy as we eat with him. Still sinners, still needing to repent, but ultimately needing the great physician to care for us. Jesus' excess in food is only matched by his excess in grace in the people that he ate with. And friends, do you see yourself as sick? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Sin is a very difficult topic for us to talk about these days. I, I listened to a, a talk by a professor from the University of Nottingham, uh, Simeon Zoll. And he was talking about, he teaches systematic theology. And he said, today it's very hard to talk about sin with college students. Because college students, quite frankly, don't understand what sin is. They don't understand what it means. To say that they are sinners, uh, they kind of look at you odd and 
have kind of a weird smirk on their face, and, and, and they don't quite understand what that even means. And I'll briefly try, hopefully, to give what I believe is a biblical perspective on sin and what it means to be a person that says, I am a sinner, I need you, Jesus, to heal me. And at first it's this, that sin is not something only other people do. Now, this is very important in our day and age to hear this because we live in a culture where we're pointing the finger. I mean, just go on Facebook. It's nothing but point, finger pointing. You're bad, and you're bad, and you say this, and read this article, and it shows how terrible you are. And We live in a culture where it's about pointing the finger. But what this passage, I think, is challenging us to see is that sin isn't out there as much as it's in here. That I'm the sinner. And I start there. Because when you start there, it changes how you view other people who are sinners. And so we begin by saying, sin is my problem, not your problem, as much as it is my problem. But here's another important distinction to make. Sin isn't so much an act as a condition. Simeon puts it this way in in his talk. He says, first and foremost, sin is not best defined as specific acts of moral transgression, say, committing adultery, or embezzling from a charity, or lying to get your way, and so on. Those are indeed what we might call sins, but they are not sin in itself. And he powerfully concludes his talk this way. He says, it's only in our sickness that we recognize the physician. It's only in our sickness that we recognize the physician. And so let me try this illustration. Maybe you'll find it helpful, I hope. Um, Imagine with me that each and every one of us come into the world with a... uh, a white set of clothes uh, that are that's spotless. This is one way to view human beings. We're all spotless. Our clothes are white and pure. We come into this world, and as we grow, and as we become aware of sinful of sin and, and selfish acts, it's almost like we begin to get dirt and coffee stains and and chocolate and all of this dirt begins to stain our white clothes. And what happens is then one day you become to faith in Jesus and he, voila, like Clorox, makes you clean and you get to start all over. And you get to try really hard not to make as many stains on your clothes. That's often how Christians view sin. And so it becomes a performance act. I need to be really careful. Don't spill the coffee. Don't rub the chocolate. Don't rub, sit in the dirt. Keep my clothes clean. And that becomes the Christian life. But I want to suggest a different way of seeing it is this. That sin isn't so much what stains your clothes. It's actually sin has stained your skin. Sin is in your very bones. And when you're born into the world, sin is more of your condition than the acts that you do. Now, there's two ways to see that. For some of you, that could be a very hopeless perspective. (laughs) You're like, wow, that's much worse than I thought before I came in here. 
And if you believe that, yes, you understand. That's why you need a doctor and not a self-help guru. That's why you need Christ because you can't do it yourself. It is a condition. You're a sinner. Scotty Smith was a pastor when I was in college, and he put it this way, and when he put it this way, the light turned on for me, and the gospel came alive when he said, I'm a sinner, not because I sin. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I'm a sinner, that's why I sin. I sin because it's my condition. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come as a great physician to heal us. Now, what does this have to do with this idea of eating meals together? For so many of us, what's so hard about having a meal or reaching out or taking risks or inviting people into our homes is there's so much baggage involved with that. You may be uncomfortable meeting new people. You may be ashamed of your house. You may not like the messiness in your home. You may be uncomfortable putting yourself out there. You may say something wrong. People might see how you really are beyond Sunday morning. There's so many things we're afraid of exposing to other people. Having someone in your house really can be exposing. But if you are grounded in the gospel, if you're grounded in the good news of Jesus' acceptance and love for you, that Jesus would come into your home and look around and see your mess and embrace you and say, I am so glad to be here. And he would see you yell at your kids. (laughs) And he would see your kids be crazy. And he would say, I love you. You are my friends. If you would be grounded in the gospel and that understanding, you would be able to be free to take those risks, to invite people into your home, to receive those invitations, to take the steps it takes. It it takes courage to live this way, to invite new people you don't know, maybe people you don't even like. We don't always like family, do we? But we still eat with family. And it's in Christ who gives us the courage and the strength to do just that. And so I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, which is just a taste of all these things that I've been talking about. It's a taste of Jesus' words saying, I love you, I accept you, you're my friend. He welcomes us to the table. He welcomes you to the table. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, allow this story, allow what it symbolizes, what we see in Jesus' graciousness, in his compassion, in the ways Jesus loves sinners. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see ourselves as the very people Jesus would dare to have a meal with. And then that would free us to go and eat with one another with joy, with celebration in the good news of the gospel and what you've done for us.
So Jesus, as, as your people, we come to take this meal. I ask that you would use it to strengthen our faith, to encourage us, to unite us. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.